going? You don't no. like it? I don't like it. Don't yeah. turn it. God in a box may seem a little too cutesy with something so sacred, but approaching Almighty God as God in a box or as a child's toy like a jack-in-the-box is something that has been going on since almost the beginning in human beings' thinking and in life. Our circumstances have, may have changed. Uh, we may be more sophisticated than people were just a few hundred years ago or thousands of years ago. But really, when we approach God and God Almighty, we can have some of those same responses as those kids did with that little jack-in-the-box. Watch it one more time and think about the responses that you're viewing and then think about the way you might approach God and see if you can see any similarities. Going. You don't no. like it? I don't like it. Don't yeah. turn it. <laughs> so we had surprise with fear. We had fear and then lashing back. We had caution and then a little fear and then falling over. We had crying in the video. Ethan cries for a lot longer than that, but I cut that out. We have wonder, then we have the woman just falling over. You would think she would have known that that was about to happen, but she seemed not to. And then the little boy, the last little boy, was probably one of the best responses to a jack-in-the-box. Some of us hear the music playing, think about coming into God's presence or being aware of God's presence, but we really don't want don't want a God that really engages or speaks to our heart. We want one that we can keep in a box. Last week, we started to look at the Ark of the Covenant as we're looking at uh, Israel in the early days uh, before Samuel becomes the leader in the process of that. We're in a passage where uh, Samuel seems to have disappeared and uh, we just, uh, again, recapping and thinking about what the Ark of the Covenant was, is, uh, we read in Hebrews, the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant, this Ark contained the golden jar of manna. Many of us know what manna is. That's the way that God provided for the uh, physical food needs of the people while they wandered in the desert, wandered in the wilderness. 
Aaron's staff that had budded. If you know the story, there was some conflict, and uh, God shows that uh, Aaron is the is to be uh, the leader in the high priest and all of that, and his uh, staff buds. The stone tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, we're familiar with that. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory. Remember, glory means recognizing God is at work. So when you and I glorify God, we're recognizing that he's at work. And God wants us to glorify him and see him in the grand things, the macro things, creation, and in the micro things in our own personal lives, in our own personal hearts. So we glorify uh, him in so many ways, and some of it's just opening up our eyes, even as Mike referred to having the music connect with some of the themes and, and all of that. That is a reflection of God helping in the planning. So we recognize that and we glorify him. Uh, we saw a couple pictures of what maybe the ark might have looked like. And I uh, kind of joked, and nobody thought it was funny, that you're not supposed to ever look into the ark. If you know from Indiana Jones and the Rays of the Ark, you would uh, melt in a moment's notice. Uh, we remember that this is a time in Israel's history where uh, they're just, they just don't have a leader. They're coming out of the judges. Then there's Eli and his two, uh, we could say, wicked sons. And Eli kind of looks the other way. Samuel is dropped into the, the picture, uh, Hannah's mother. We talked about that earlier on in the fall. And so we continually see the people looking for someone to lead in their lives besides God. And we're going to see as we move through this, we're going to move up through Easter and then take a little bit of break and then come back to it. We're going to see that they're just longing for some kind of leadership in their life that they can actually trust. And the reality is all of us long for that, too. We want somebody we can trust. When it comes to an election, uh, we want something, someone we can trust. And we just see it over and over again. We were wired, we were designed to follow someone's lead. Some of us may not like that, but there's this hole in our heart. And we're going to say, as Christ followers, that spot can only be filled with God through a relationship that Christ provides for us. In a few moments, we'll celebrate communion, and we'll talk a little bit about that. So there's always this, this idea that we're seeking, and there's this hope for this future king. And even as we move into, and I'm going to remind you of this constantly, that David, we have Saul, then we have David, and then we have some other kings, Solomon, and etc. But uh, David epitomizes the perfect king, has all the credentials, has all the heart, but he still lets everyone down and we're going to find as we have our human experience as we look at the history of the planet that our leaders to some extent even the most best that can be offered to whatever context it is will let us down because they're not perfect so that sets an appetite a hunger for a perfect leader a hope for a future king and our hope for the future king as christ falls is christ himself so we look to that and we hope for that now when we look at a passage that uh, really was taking place we would say around 3,000 years ago some of us may say what does that have for us today and uh, the history uh, even the newer testament is is old it's uh, you know close to 2,000 years in a place in places uh, 1900 years so, so these are old, ancient documents, and there's something different about these than other maybe sacred writings that others may hold to, where we would say that these, this is the Word of God. It doesn't contain the Word of God. 
it is the word of God. Not when you read it and it tugs on your heart, that makes it God's word. It actually is every word inspired by God. God used people to write it, and we have this. We may not understand it all, and that's fine, but we understand enough to have a relationship with God through Christ, and we understand enough to live a glorifying life, a pleasing to God, not to, again to earn his love, but to show that his love is transforming our heart, changing us. Paul writes about this in Romans when he says, whatever was written beforehand is meant to instruct us in how to live. The scriptures impart to us encouragement and inspiration so that we can live in hope and endure all things. That little last phrase there bothers me. So it's not just the life is going to be wonderful, but there's this piece where scripture helps us endure. We sang a song about temptation. Scripture um, leading by the Holy Spirit in our lives can help us navigate through the ups and downs of life. And the Older Testament, the Newer Testament, which is still pretty old, all of that speaks to us. And Paul says, Look at it, study it, learn what is going on there. See how God shows up. Yes, there's different ways, law versus grace, and you have to be a student of the scriptures. This just doesn't come by cracking the Bible up and guessing at what it means. We need to be students of the scriptures, wherever we're at, whatever stage of life. So uh, this hope, and uh, it helps us endure everything. Verse 5 uh, to me, is very powerful. It says, now may God, connecting with verse 4, the source of great endurance and comfort grace you with unity among yourselves, which flows from your relationship with Jesus, the anointed one. And we need to remember that one of the byproducts, one of the fruits of the Spirit, one of the ways that we see that God is showing up in our lives is the way we, as Christ follows, get along with each other. This is crucial, 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 crucial. If, and it, if we're not getting along, it, it's, I can't, this isn't a word I'm making up. It's an unglorification of God. God's glory is that we, from all different walks of life, different experiences, different, different um, limps, because we all have a limp, we all have some things happen in our life, but all of this, when we all put it together, we get together as a group of Christ followers in a local assembly, it's supposed to show up that we have unity in a sense. It doesn't mean we're all clones. We're all moving in the same direction. And it shows that our relationship with Jesus is flourishing. Earlier on, we talked about husbands and wives. We saw that our prayer life is affected when our relationships with our spouses aren't right. That doesn't mean they're going to be perfect, but it means they're moving in the right direction. So this idea of uh, connectivity, unity is so important. So when you and I take the Older Testament, take the Newer Testament, learn how God works and how we're to respond to the different circumstances that time with truth, there should be one apparent wow moment that God, that others see unity in us as we work together because of our relationship with Jesus, the anointed one. So, with that all said, we're in a moment of history where uh, the Israelites lost one battle, uh, lost thousands of guys, and then they, as we saw last week, get their lucky rabbit's foot, the Ark of the Covenant, representing God's presence, but there needs to be a heart engagement, and they march that out without ever asking 
what's wrong with us? What did, we, what did we do? They just think, wow, we get this lucky rabbit's foot, bring it out, we'll win. So they march it out, Eli's two sons, number two and number three in the religious uh, hierarchy of uh, what's going on in Israel, march out with it, and they lose ten times worse than the first battle. Uh, the Philistines grab the Ark of the Covenant, and, uh, you know, this, this is bad news. There's like a couple times where it seems like Israel is never going to make it, and this is one of those times. It's all over. God has left us in the Ark and all of that, and we read in uh, the last part of chapter 4, we read this, the chest of, the God, chest of God is gone. That's the Ark of the Covenant, the way Eugene Peterson renders it. Uh, father-in-law dead, husband dead, she named the boy Ichabod, God's glory gone, saying God, or saying glory is exalted, exiled from Israel since the chest of God was taken. And so this is, this is where we're at. And sometimes we can feel, we look at our country, look at things that are happening in our lives, and we just say, wow, it seems like the glory of God has left. We see it in another situation. We see it in experience over here. But we have to always remember, we have to always remember that God really doesn't leave the scene. Uh, when we lean away from him, when we pull back from him, he is still present waiting for us to respond. Last week we saw the, the question after the first battle was, where in life might I need to repent? And that doesn't mean every time something bad happens in your life, you need to think you've sinned, but you at least ought to ask the question. Where have I done something? Where have I maybe even created these consequences because of my actions not following God? Not always, but a lot of times, sometimes it's my response. And that's why I'm going through this harder time. So when it comes to thinking about God and Israel and thinking about God in our lives today, we need to remember when it seems like God has been defeated, he really hasn't been defeated. When God's people are defeated, it doesn't mean God himself has been defeated because God cannot be defeated. So no matter what happens on the planet Earth in 2023, no matter what happens in Ukraine, no matter what happens in China and Taiwan, no matter what happens in our own country, when we watch when people just do horrendous things to each other we see a court case this week that just captivated a lot of the nation and we go how could a husband do that how at all these kinds of things it's just countless things and it seems like god's influence has been defeated you need to realize that that's not true that's not true if you track history of israel you're going to see that there's ups and downs a lot of downs so don't walk away from a story thinking god's defeated that's what um eli's daughter-in-law was thinking and you can't in a sense blame her so we're going to pick up in chapter five uh there's a rack bible around you if you don't have a paper copy you can take that uh, it's going to be page 186 we also suggest that if you have an electronics device you download uh the U version app it's free and then you can have that with you wherever your phone is or wherever your tablet is your computer that's a really fantastic thing to have a part of with you wherever you go so verse number one after the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried it into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Now, you would say, why would they do this? You know, why didn't they just destroy the Ark of the Covenant? Why would they actually keep it? Well, it was like a trophy. 
And um, there's this idea of syncretism where, where the Philistines believed there were lots of gods and they would kind of merge things together. So they're thinking Dagon is the, is the number one god and the god of the Israelites have been defeated, but he still exists. So what a great thing to put him at the feet of our idol in the temple. And every time we go in, we can go, yeah, that's right. The Israelite god, they didn't really, he didn't really come through in that battle. And he's subservient to Dagon. So this is all a part of their thinking, uh, part of their, uh, when they're thinking about their culture and thinking about their win. Again, if you remember last week when the Ark of the Covenant came in, the, the Philistines were rocked. They were very nervous. They were like, we're going to lose, and they didn't lose. So this also means that Dagon is the, is the great god, and this is, he's just supreme, and, and we're going to be blessed by this. So this is why this is all going on. So when the people of Ashdod arose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen onto his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. An amazing thing, you know, they come in and they go, wow, I wonder what happened. Was there like an earthquake last night? What happened? And they're not putting things together, but there's a lot of symbolism, obviously, here, that their God is now face down looking at, the, in a sense, the Ark of the Covenant. And they kind of miss that. Uh, sometimes you and I can do that, too. We, we elevate something to, like, God's status in our life. We would never call it an idol, We would, but it's kind of controlling our life, and, and we've got it there, and we have these other things, maybe God himself, and we have them all in the same room of our life, if you will. And uh, we wake up the next day, and all of a sudden we find the thing that we were holding on to so tightly is collapsed, it's fallen down, and, and God is still in the room. And we've got to kind of like figure out what that means. Well, the Philistines, like us, just didn't look at the consequences of that, and they move on, and they set their God back up. And sometimes you and I will find that we set our gods back up. We have something that's captured our heart, our, we're just driven about it. We think if that is a part of our life, we're delivered, we're satisfied, uh, we're encouraged. And so we, we have that thing, and all of a sudden we find it's not, it's not meeting our needs, it's not coming through to us. So rather than go, whoa, wait a minute, maybe I've taken my eyes off the real God, the only God. We, we don't think that. We set it back up, we prop it back up, and we start kind of like serving it with our life. Uh, the things, the resources of life are all going to this one idea this one concept in our life and we're kind of focused on that even though it fell over and it didn't satisfy so we move on so but the next morning but the following morning when they rose there was dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the lord his head and hands had been broken off and they were lying on the threshold only his body remained that's key in battles when the other opponent force lost, often they would cut off their hands and make them infective. Sometimes they'd cut off their hands and obviously cut off their head and that would kill them, but they would do this as a showing of victory. So again, here the Philistines are going, wait a minute, yesterday, did you catch a breeze early in the morning that blew through that knocked them off? No, was there no? No, but, but this, this, is, this is wow. And again, sometimes you and I can be a little dent, have a little bit of a hardened heart, and we see things that we're trusting in falling down in our lives, just saying, if this only happens, then I'll have satisfaction, and it, do it doesn't work that way, and yet we, we continue on. So here we have, we have, that is why to this day, neither the priest 
of Dagon, nor others who enter Dagon's temple at Ash God's step on the threshold. Now, you ever watched uh, little kids play like the lava game? I love the lava game. I have uh, one, Aubrey comes in a lot of Sundays, and she's, we're having a conversation about, did you step on any lava and all this kind of thing? And, you know, you bounce around and, uh, you know, you don't step on that. And this is what's going on. They, they won't step on that any longer because of what happened to their God. Uh, it's, it's just kind of like in their mind, burned into it. When the people of Ashdod saw that this was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us. They're finally starting to put it together. Because his hand is heavy on us and, Dago, on, uh, on, and on Dagon, our God. And uh, it's just, you know, they're seeing it. They're seeing the heaviness of God's hand on them. And, uh, but they're not responding to God. If you read through the Old Testament, you're going to see that sometimes we look at the Old Testament and say, wow, they're just focused on the Israelites and, and no one can like join the party. But if you read through very closely, you're going to see little verses that say if somebody outside of Israel, outside of the 12 tribes, wants to find to get on board with the God of Israel, there's an on-ramp to that. Every once in a while you see it. And this is a moment for the Philistines. They can either say, wow, there's something to this God. They, they don't see that. They just say he's heavy on us, and they're going to push him away. And sometimes you and I miss opportunities where God's hand is heavy on us. And we have a moment to decide, do we move towards him, or do we move away from him? <laughs> or we let him go. And uh, maybe even this morning, you're, you're looking at life, and you can say, wow, the Lord is heavy on me, and you've got a decision of what to do, lean in or lean away. The Philistines will lean away, and, uh, you know, again, this may sound, uh, if you're just checking things out, uh, this may sound a little arrogant to say Jesus is the one way, but Jesus himself, we saw this verse last week, when Jesus answered, talking about himself, he said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to me except through the Father. And so that is so core to being a Christ follower. We're going to celebrate communion. He died, but he rose again. And so, you know, this is key. And if there was another option, why didn't God give uh, Jesus the other option when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? So, so when you think about all this and you think about the different gods of the Middle East and the Philistines, and they had different gods. Uh, this is all going on, and instead of onboarding, they, they pull away and they try to drive God from their presence. So they call together all the rulers of the Philistines and ask them, so there's five main cities, so there's probably five rulers, what should we do with the Ark of the God of Israel? They answered, have the Ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath. So they moved the Ark of the God of Israel but after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was heavy against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. And you go, what is going on? God is saying, hey, I'm not going to be captive. I'm not going to be a God in the box that you can just pull out and use at your pleasure. You may do that with your gods, Philistines, but that's not who I am. I am the God, and it throws the city. They, as they see the connection, 
They see the connection. Sometimes the consequences in our lives is because we're pushing God away. And the way we push God away is not responding to life to the way he would like us to view life. And so we have a different operating system. And so consequences just heat up and the Lord is heavy on us. And he's not heavy on us to kind of crush us. He's heavy on us to wake us up. Sometimes you have these conversations with someone whose life seems to be spinning out of control. And sometimes the comment will go, not in a judgmental way, but you'll say, when are they going to hit rock bottom so they'll change? And that, in a sense, is a joy when they change. It was a joy when you changed. When God's hand was heavy upon you, And he said, you know, I need to give God a second look. I need to give God a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, a whatever chance. Rather than saying, you know, God, I'm just mad at you. I'm I'm just going to run the other direction. The Philistines do that. We're going to see as Israel, eventually they lean into God. But this idea of when God's hand is heavy on you. Sometimes I have to ask myself, how bad does the pain have to get in my own life for me to actually wake up and change? Which kind of like doesn't make sense. Do I have to like really be uh, just upset and have anxiety and anguish and just feel super empty because I'm just ignoring God even though as a Christ follower, as a pastor, I'm going through all the motions? How far do I have to go till I really wake up and re-engage? And that's a question we have to ask regularly. That's one reason it's good to celebrate communion once a month or whenever we do it. We do it basically once a month because it reminds us to reset our lives. And just maybe, just maybe we will, in a sense, not have to have God's hand heavy on us to reset. We, we don't have to learn everything the hard way. We don't have to find out that the stove is hot by putting our hand on the stove. Someone can say, that stove is hot. And we go, oh, I'm going to stay away from that. Rather than go, really? I don't believe you. I guess it's hot. You, you know, it, it, it sounds, sounds silly, and it is silly, but we all do that in some way. We do it on some way. You know, I'd rather learn by learning and not have to, we have to learn everything the hard way. So we continue on. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, these people got a clue. The people of Ekron cried out, Why have you brought the ark of the God of the Israel around to us to kill us and our people? Again, it's amazing. They're not having it, but instead of leaning in, they keep leaning away. Back to that idea. How bad does it have to get for us to lean in rather than lean away? So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death has filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumors and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. And that they're not up to heaven instead of God. They're just they're just just besides themselves and they won't take the right step. At least they'll get out of God's presence, if you will. And some of us have done that, right? Some of us have been reading a book, reading scripture, going to church, listening to this person, and we know they're right on, and God's hand is heavy on us, not to crush us, but he wants it heavy on us so he can flip it over and lift us up 
and uh, we we just we just we just stay arm's length distance. Uh, we hear something, we back off. We just we're not ready to, in a sense, have that kind of repentance, that kind of change of heart show up in our life. And again, as I'm even speaking this right now, I'm going, wow, where in my life right now, with God's head even just lightly on me, it hasn't even gotten heavy on me. And I'm just not paying attention. How far, how low do I have to go before I respond positively to God's presence? Now, this whole idea of idols, um, you can read it in Exodus 20. It basically says don't put anything or anyone above God. Uh, This is the beginning of the process. If you get this right, Jesus says it this way, love God, then love others. But if you love God, you won't have idols in your life, uh, concepts, ideas, possessions, relationships that you're looking to satisfy that hole in your heart. Uh, That's that's an idol. And uh, when you have those kinds of things, it just it just changes everything around. Uh, A little definition today, an idol includes anything or anyone loved more than God wanted more than God, desired more than God, treasured more than God, or enjoyed more than God. Sometimes I have to ask, what steals even my time to spend time with God? Just the other day, some of you are aware of this, we have this uh, super issue in our house about uh, a chair and where it should be. It shouldn't be in my office. Can we get another chair? I don't have kids to clean today, so I'm not sure yet. But the other day, I was thinking about, I know, we need to get these, like, lazy boys that have a low back, and they could sit here and this or something. And, and all of a sudden, I started thinking about that. And at the same time, it was the moment where I was supposed to spend my time with God. And I had this moment where I'm going to go, am I going to get online and go check out the kids and see what I can find out there? And, or am I going to read? I'm in Jeremiah right now. Am I going to get back into Jeremiah? back and forth, and I went back to Jeremiah, then I started thinking about the kids again, and, uh, you know, I mean, something, you know, again, what has your attention, what has my attention, and sometimes I have to ask God and say, God, I want you to have my attention, I'm not even wanting it right now, so I want it, so Lord, I'm not there. I want to be captivated by you. I want you to own my heart. I want to treasure you more than anything else. But right now, I'm thinking about two lazy boy chairs. What is wrong? I'm going to buzz. You know. So uh, you get the idea. I think some of you have probably lived there. So when we think about all of this, when we think about 3,000 years ago, what do we do there? So Said in other ways, just some points here. A God in a box promises security and joy. You and I have put God in a box when we're looking for our security and joy to come from Him. So that means regularly you have to take an inventory and say, God, lazy boy chair. Really feel comfortable. Actually, I could do my devotion from a lazy boy chair. God's not buying that manipulation deal. We just pray a little prayer. Okay, so whatever your joy and security comes from, if it's not God, God is going to fix it. And you now have something that's an idol in your life.
Okay, you've got to work that out. You've got to ask for forgiveness. You have to you know, refocus and go, God, you're my answer, not this thing, not this position, not this relationship. Some of us are looking for this relationship. Some of us are looking to be married. Some of us uh, are looking, uh, you, you know, for, for just a really good friend, and that's so all that's important. Some of us are looking for a special position. Some of us are looking for lazy boy chairs. Some of us are looking for a new car, whatever it may be. Joy and security comes from Jesus first. And yes, it is work. You have to be engaged with him. How can you expect to um, have him as your security and joy if you never spend any time with him? It just, do- it just doesn't make sense. And, you know, when we think about, you know, even like a worship service like this, you know, we gather and, you know, it's hard for me like next Sunday I'm on vacation, so we'll be at another church. And I want to go to the other church, it's a friend of mine's church, I want to go there and enjoy the service. I don't want to be like picking it apart. Like, ooh, I wish they had done it this way. Or, wow, that was a little loud, that was not loud enough. It was this, it was that. Oh, he should have used this word instead of that word. And I, I just want to go. So trained to be critical and i'm like evaluating no 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 you go to sunday you get to the spiritual point where you show up at a church on sunday not from what you can get out of it but from what you can give you give your heart you re-give your heart to jesus in a sense it's not a new salvation or new but you kind of like recalibrate and so you ask so you just you just kind of i am here for you not you for me. I'm not what I can get out of it. I'm here for, will you be pleased what's happening in my heart when I'm singing these songs, when I'm listening to you, where we go, where you say, oh, wow, that's something, Lord, I can show that I love you. I'm, I'm going to try to do that. I, I want to be a part of that. Thanks for speaking to me so I can go glorify you, so people can recognize your work, not just in the big planet scheme, but in my life. In your notes, I think we've got uh, Revelation 6, 15 to, si- 15 to 16. And that just basically just reminds us of who God is. There's this tension. God is my friend. What a friend I have in Jesus. But God is God Almighty. If he was to physically come in this room, we would be on our knees. We wouldn't be going, hey, God, shot five. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be doing that. He is God Almighty, and if anything, our brand of following Christ often downplays the glory and the majesty and the awesomeness of God Almighty. We downplay it. He's our friend. Yes, he is, but he's God Almighty. There is no refuge from this awesome God, except the refuge that is found in this awesome God. That Revelation passage talks about people rejecting God, leaning away from him, but they're so struck by who he is that they want the the walls, the, the, the rocks, the mountains to fall in on them because he is too awesome for them to even be in presence with him, even at the same time while they're rejecting him. Don't understand that. Thankful that Jesus spoke to my heart and I responded. Can't imagine rejecting Jesus, even even when he's in the flesh, if you will, to say, no, I'm not following you. Turns out that's what they do. But when you and I 
Think about the awesomeness of God. There's no escaping him, but escaping to him. I'm a God in a box needs defense and support. Sometimes you and I will find whatever that item is, uh, we start supporting it. Uh, Dagon was set re set back up into whatever that concept is. Maybe it's a maybe it's the desire of appearing successful. And you say, Wow, that would really fill some of my being. I just want to be successful in this. And this is temptation for all kinds of pastors out there. Is you know, when you bump into other pastors and they're talking to you and they say, So how big is your church? And you want to go, Well, it's just you know, and you want to have it a little bit bigger. And why do you do that? Because you want identity from being effective and successful but the minute you start doing that you have just put success above god because you're being dishonest you're misleading and so there's there's that tension there so a god in the box needs defense and support you're putting energy and resources you're in a sense defending him you're propping him up and uh, whatever that may be, sometimes someone gets fixated on, a, on a, a summer home, and now they're saving all their money to put their summer home or whatever, or new kitchen or new this or new that, and, and that's become their focus. Or lazy boy chairs, and they're just trying to figure out all kinds of ways. They're talking to their wife, telling her why these lazy boy chairs would just be perfect for the living room. You know, they're just defending it, supporting it, and it's just becoming uh, you know, fixated in their mind. So just understanding that. Also, a God in a box cannot fulfill promises. Just won't happen. Whatever promise or hope you have in that God in your box, it will never fulfill the promises you have for it, whatever that may be. Isaiah writes this, no one stops to think, no one has the knowledge or understanding to say, hey, half of it I used for fuel. This is talking about a piece of wood. I even baked over its, in its, over its coals. I roasted meat and ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? This lover of emptiness, of nothing, is so out of touch with reality, so far gone that he can't even look at what he's doing, can't even look at the no-God stick of wood in his hand and say, this is crazy. If you're a Christ follower and you're worshiping something else, it's like worshiping a piece of wood where half of it you cooked your dinner on and the other half it's now this idol. And Isaiah, under the inspiration of God, is saying that kind of life is crazy. And we see, we see again the response to the Philistines is this. They moved the ark. They got the ark away from them, symbolizing God's presence. Rather than trying to reconcile what that would mean for them, they moved away. And that's really where all of us come down to, even on a morning like this, we've got to say, am I going to move God's presence away? I mean, you really can't totally do that, but are you going to try to harden your heart so you don't feel God's presence? Whether that's as a Christ follower, whether that's trying to figure out, should I say yes to Jesus? Are you going to do that? Are you going to let the Ark of the Covenant move away from you? Are you going to lean into it and keep his presence close. Because when you don't do that, a God in a box becomes a major problem. Sometimes a God in a box starts off as something valuable, something good, but then it's elevated way too high. When good things become God things, we've got a God in a box problem. 
When good things become God things, we have a God in the box problem. And as a culture and a society, that was huge for us. But it was huge for the Philistines too. It was huge for the Israelites, and, and they were around God all the time. They were his chosen people, yet they, they looked at God being in a box, something they could pull out when they needed him, and when they didn't need him, they could ignore him. We've got to be very, very careful about that. In Philippians, we read, you know, we see this Dagon God bowing, in a sense, at the feet of the Ark of the Covenant, which is very symbolic of bowing to God. But the reality is everything in creation, every human being, and you may say, this is pretty arrogant to say, but Paul writes it under the inspiration of God, will take a knee. The question is, will you bow in this chapter of your life, or you wait till you have to bow. The bowing in this chapter, God is taking a knee in this chapter, ensures eternity, waiting to bow because you have to, because he's God Almighty, will not. We won't be with him in eternity. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and under earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's coming. Someday that will be the reality. Whether you bow in the here and now or you wait. Whether you bow in the little things or wait. When good things become God things, we've got a God in the box problem. So I challenge you this morning. We celebrate communion in a few moments. We'll recalibrate. Uh, communion is just not something we just throw in, but it's great to remember what Christ did for us and our response to that. And for some of you, you may have never placed your trust in Christ. And yes, there is a demand. You have to repent. You have to change your actions, not to earn his love, but you repent because you want to uh, celebrate his love. If it doesn't touch your heart, it hasn't touched your heart. If it has touched your heart, there will be an expression on the outside of your life, outside of my life. So I challenge you to say yes to Christ today. Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you for your love for us. Words cannot express uh, who you are, your awesomeness. So this morning, in this moment, we really do want to take a knee to you. We want to acknowledge your son. We want to bow. We want to surrender to him. And we want that to show up in the way we live. Not to earn your love, but to show that we've experienced it. That you are the God in the center of life. You are God Almighty. So help us to do that. Help us to do that whatever age or stage in life we're at. Some of us uh, have just uh, traveled long miles to even get to the place where we're sitting, listening to a message. And I pray that your grace and your mercy will be upon that person and they will be able to lean into you. And for those of us who have said yes to you years ago, we ask that we would keep saying yes to you daily. And sometimes for us, it needs to be a minute-by-minute thing of saying yes to you. We thank you for your compassion. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for your love.